This is the Political Monitor Podcast, brought to you by the Concord Monitor. In today's show, John Kasich makes waves, Hillary Clinton talks higher education, and we round up a week of debate responses and general Trumpness. I'm Clay Wirestone, a columnist and editor for The Monitor, and I'm glad to welcome our politics editor, Jonathan Van Fleet. Hi, Clay. Hi, John. And also joining us is our politics reporter, Casey McDermott. Hello again. Hello, Casey. So this week, let's start with Ohio Governor John Kasich. He snagged a prominent endorsement from former Attorney General Tom Rath, and he's moving into third place in recent polls of the state. So Casey, let's talk about the Kasich surge, so to speak. What's behind the momentum here? Um, I think there are several things. Uh, The first that's important to keep in mind is that Kasich's uh, PAC, A New Day for America, has been running ads uh, pretty consistently here for several weeks. So that's helped him to gain some more name recognition where previously he was one of the lesser known candidates in the field. Um, The other thing that has helped him is his performance in last week's debate on Fox News. I talked to some women after his event. Um, He had a town hall in Derry yesterday, one of several events that he had done throughout the state this week. Um, And one of those women said, you know, I didn't really know much about him, but I saw him in the debate, was really interested. And that caused me to come out today and learn more about him. Um, And then he also is, you know, now the... Uh, the benefactor of some kind of New Hampshire prestige in the form of an endorsement and some campaign advising from uh, Tom Rath, who is a veteran many decades over of New Hampshire Republican politics, um, former attorney general, uh, very kind of, you know, one of the kind of statesmen of of that party in New Hampshire. Um, And he initially was not intending on getting involved in in the race this year. Um, and I remember when I was talking to him earlier this year, he was kind of on the sidelines, didn't really want to weigh in. And, um, you know, I, I think that the New Hampshire political press are probably kicking themselves because now we lose another kind of commentator who can provide, you know, big, big picture um analysis without being affiliated on the campaigns. But he said that, you know, the more he saw of Kasich, um, the more he really appreciated his inclusive message. And he specifically pointed to his performance in the debate, um, the answer that he gave when asked about how he would respond if one of his daughters was gay. Um, and Kasich, in summary, said that he supported traditional marriage, but basically that, you know, his faith teaches him that you should love and accept everyone no matter what. And that won him um, a, a fair amount of political points with, uh, with people like Rath. Well, and he also said, I believe, that same-sex marriage was settled law or something along those lines in his answer. Um, You know, and Kasich is the kind of candidate that if you had to kind of manufacture the type of person who would do well in the New Hampshire primary, he's one of those kinds Mm -hmm. of of guys, kind of a quasi-moderate Midwestern governor who's willing to kind of take Mm -hmm. some stances that aren't always in line with Mm -hmm. the ideological wing of the party. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you, um, you know, things that come up at 
nearly every one of his town halls that I've been to, and really at, at many of the town halls that um, I go to with other candidates, um, immigration comes up and he's, you know, more moderate than others on that issue. Um, he uh, is is not um, uh, shy about defending his decision to expand Medicaid in his state. Um, he also, you know, will articulate a stance that is, you know, supportive of common core standards or some kind of federal standards for education, which um, he got into a little bit of a, you know, discussion with a woman yesterday who was a mom who homeschooled her students and was concerned about the influence of those standards on what she had to teach her her student at home. And he, you know, handled it pretty level-headed. You know, he he heard her concerns, said he would follow up with her, explained his position, you know, stuck to his his defense of the need for standards, but, you know, said, you know, I'd like to talk to you more and find out more about the specific issues that you're you're talking about, which really, you know, candidates, I think, are can go one of several ways when challenged on their positions at a town hall. And that seemed to be the more diplomatic way to go in a case like that. So, um, so far he seems to be handling himself pretty well at town halls. Um, he has the kind of candor that you see from maybe not the same kind of candor, but he's a little bit rough around the edges. Um, very casual in his manner of speech um, and fulfills some of the kind of authenticity qualities that you see from people, you know, to some extent Donald Trump, to some extent Christie, but is maybe a little more polished or more mainstream than those two. Mm-hmm. So John Van Fleet, Kasich Mintum, is yes. it real? Is <laughs> it happening? Do you feel it? <laughs> do I feel it? Yes, I do. It's funny that when someone reaches like 9% in the polls, we <laughs> consider them surging, that there's this massive momentum. And I think that's testament to the, the 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 field is still so large that if someone gains a few percentage points in the polls, it's this massive surge of momentum. Um, what I was going to say is when he came in for our edit board, Casey, you talked about his authenticity. When he came in for his edit board back on June 5th, it was it was interesting. It was more like a casual conversation than it was a true question and answer. He was willing to, to, to take on some of the issues, but it was also very free-flowing in that his daughter was here and she was out in the lobby. He's got twin daughters and, and one of them was running in a track meet and the and the the editorial board interview was was uh interviewed when the one the daughter who was running in the track meet had i believe qualified for the 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 state finals <laughs> and she she ran in and he gave her a big hug and he played a video of the race and so to me i he wasn't afraid to kind of be himself in that setting it it was it was nice. It seemed genuine to me. He's definitely um, more, I think, a little more unbuttoned than other candidates. I noticed, you know, he doesn't often wear a tie when I see him, which, you know, you don't see with any a lot of other candidates all the time. But it's definitely like more, uh, more casual, more just kind of come as he is. Democratic candidate Hillary Clinton made headlines this week 
unveiling an ambitious plan to help students pay for their college tuition costs. Uh, she announced the uh, plan uh, here in New Hampshire. So, John, uh, why did she choose this state to do it? Undoubtedly, it's because of our, our black mark for having not only the lowest per capita assistance for higher education of all the states, but also the highest average debt load, which is about $33,000 per college graduate, a statistic that she cited when she unveiled this plan on Monday. And, uh, you know, this, is, this has been a, a struggle here in New Hampshire. If we're not last, we're usually second to last in these categories. And so if you want to talk about college affordability, there's really no better place to do it than right here in New Hampshire. Yeah, and I also think the, the figures I saw were currently a year at the University of New Hampshire, if you include both tuition and room and board, is approaching something along the lines of $27,000, mm-hmm. too. So it's, it's, it's very pricey. And um, going up. Right. And it's, what's it's interesting to me is if you look at her plan, which I've done some, some research on, it's basically proposing a $350 billion investment over a period of about 10 years. And about half of that is going towards the states to basically encourage them to make tuition free, more or less, for, for students who aren't able to, to really pay. And, but the way, that she's, the way that her campaign is hoping to make this tuition free is basically encouraging the states to reinvest in their public, uh, in, their, in their universities. Um, and, you know, and, and the amount of state money they would get, you know, kind of is based on how, I mean, the amount of federal money they get would be based on, you know, how well they funded their universities, how many middle and middle income and lower income students were enrolled. But it would be kind of an opt-in program, um, which to me at least raises some questions as to if such a, if a plan like this were even passed, it would become something like Medicaid expansion or something like that, where there becomes this big you know, state versus the federal government kind of kind of situation going on. Um, but Casey, this is also something that I mean, other candidates are talking about this too. It's not like Hillary Clinton came out of the, you know did this just on her own. Yeah, yeah, definitely. This is emerging as a um, you know one of many issues that are being talked about um, by a number of candidates this year. And uh, you saw Martin O'Malley actually unveil a college uh, affordability plan in New Hampshire earlier this year. Um, Bernie Sanders introduced legislation in Congress um, to address student debt and college affordability. Um, I believe Marco Rubio has put out a plan or has articulated a set of policies on this as well. Rand Paul, in an interview with The Monitor, um, I believe set out his own kind of vision on this. So I think you're going to continue to see the candidates address this. And I think that you know, this has, obviously, it's a pressing policy issue that affects people of, of really of all ages. You know, you have people even into their mid-adulthood who are still dealing with student debt for one reason or another. Um, but it is also an issue that if they want to lock up the, you know, I kind of cringe as I say this, but the millennial <laughs> vote, um, this is an issue that affects a lot of people who are, I'm 23 years old, who are my age. Um, and it's definitely something that has an impact not only on kind of, you know, our budgeting and our immediate economic, you know, well-being, but also just on the ability to kind of, you know, secure a house, secure various other kind of life steps that other generations were able to. So, 
and Casey, just when you're lucky enough to pay off your college loans, it's just about that time in life where people begin having kids, and then you get to start saving money for their college education. So you're right. It affects absolutely everyone at every stage of their life, from birth, although they don't know about it, but it's really an issue from birth until almost retirement, which is when you have to start worrying about all the other things that you don't have money for. <laughs> the circle of life. Uh, I found it interesting that, that Hillary Clinton made a point of distinguishing herself from the Republican field because she said that none of the Republican candidates brought up college affordability at the debate. Yet, as we just pointed out, she is among the the last of the Democratic candidates to bring this up. Um, and then, you know, it wasn't necessarily a coincidence, I think, that right after Hillary Clinton came out with those criticisms, that Rand Paul came out with a college affordability plan. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, the, the question and answer format of the Fox News debate last week didn't really give them a, a chance to identify their own policy issues. Of course, they could have in, the, in their introductory and closing remarks, but Fox News wasn't asking about a college affordability right. either. Right. Well, it did come up, I mean, not as a policy issue, but Marco Rubio actually used it as a diss against Hillary Clinton, where he pointed to kind of, you know, his middle class, working class upbringing and pointed to the amount of student loans that he had as one way of saying, basically, you know, how is Hillary Clinton going to be able to lecture me on being dirt poor. So um, Hillary Clinton is right in that it was not brought up as a policy issue, but it was in fact brought up as a, a dig at her. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's also important to note, I mean, as the, the Clinton plan also points out, I mean, this is a, a multifaceted issue. You know, there's the issue of how much college actually costs now and the tuition there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's only about half of what she's setting aside from her total. The, the other, I mean, another fourth of it, I guess, is towards you know refinancing loans and trying to get mm -hmm. students out of more exploitative kind of lo loan arrangements with mm -hmm. higher interest and then i think the final fourth is you know kind of new initiatives kind mm -hmm. of experimenting with different ways of, of training mm -hmm. of training students and different kind of financing methods yeah and she has i mean to be fair well this is the first that she's unveiled kind of a full-fledged plan this is a question that's come up at a number of events that she's had so far and she has um during those events signaled an intent to you know move more toward income-based repayment plans pointing to her own ability to do that after she graduated law school um and was working in a legal assistance position so um, she's talked about it, but not as in detail as this. And it's it's also just remarkable for for a campaign. It seems to me this early in the process. I mean, we're we're still in August. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's what what her campaign announces is a very wide reaching mm -hmm. kind of proposal mm -hmm. that touches on a lot of things. And it, it feels to me almost as though she's trying to set a, a space for herself apart from other candidates, maybe not even other Democratic candidates, but the other Republican mm -hmm. candidates, saying, you know, look. They're talking in generalities. Here are actual specifics about what I'm planning to do. Well, actually, I mean, I think if you are following Martin O'Malley, his team would rebut that in saying that he's actually carving out or and has been for several months trying to carve out a position as somewhat of a policy wonk and mm -hmm. has issued a number of white papers and other policy statements and things like that and has tried to... Um, say, you know, look at me, I'm being very specific. The other candidates are being more general. So mm -hmm. um, 
I mean, I don't know that that was definitely that he forced her hand on this, but I would think that that, you know, might have bumped up, um, you know, that in combination with Sanders being someone who's an elected official who's sitting right now and has that kind of access to specific policies and tools to affect change, um, that might have pushed the policy conversation up a little bit. And the fact that Bernie's breathing down her neck, that's literally. True. Well, that's um, true. In the polls. But what was it? It was a poll just this week, right? That, yeah. That showed Bernie Sanders for the first time ahead of Hillary Clinton. I mean, it was still within the margin of error, I believe. Yeah, right? this was a Franklin Pierce University Boston Herald poll. Um, there were about 442 randomly selected likely Democratic presidential primary voters. Um, the margin of error was 4.7%. So... Taking that into account, the two are statistically tied, um, but it was, you know, this was the first time when Bernie Sanders was actually, you know, showing a, a lead on Clinton. He had uh, 44% of support in this poll to Clinton's 37%. Um, so, you know, while it's still early, there's still a lot that can change between now and election day. I think that and this is only one poll, I think that this, you know, makes clear what I think people on both sides of, of this particular rivalry would agree that this is a, a competitive race and will likely continue to be. So for this segment, we're just going to talk about some smaller news items or just other things that have uh, been happening over the past week. One of something that made some recent headlines in the monitor was a federal judge overturning our ballot selfie law. John? Yes. All right. So (laughs) it was illegal to take a picture of your ballot and post it and show it to other people, essentially post it on social media. Point is, the ballot that you filled out. Yes. It could be. It a could have been an ballot. Empty, a blank ballot was okay. Right, and the idea is that uh, it w- it could influence how people cast their votes. For example, if I told you, Clay, that you must vote a certain way, you must vote straight Republican ticket, and take a picture of your ballot and show it to me to prove that you did what I told you to. Mm-hmm. I could put undue duress on you to vote other than the way that you would normally do. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I know how you would vote in the it's secret. A, it's a mystery. Private voting booth. But um, the ACLU, New Hampshire Civil Liberties Union, uh, with uh, several Republican legislators, including Leon Rideout, were defying this law. So they were intentionally taking photos of their ballots and posting them online. Twitter was typically the thing. Facebook, they post them there. And the AG's office was bound to investigate. And so there is, in fact, criminal investigations going into people who posted pictures of their ballots. So Leon Rideout filed legislation to get the, the bill, uh, get the law, sorry, repealed. That didn't go anywhere. And so the New Hampshire Civil Liberties Union attacked it from a legislative, uh, sorry, a legal aspect, sued and uh, said this is a, vile, a free speech um, case. And uh, a federal judge has now agreed and said the New Hampshire law banning photos of your filled out ballot is in fact unconstitutional, a violation of your free speech rights. So tweet away, folks. <laughs> right. 
I wonder if they will let selfie sticks into the ballot boxes. Ooh, that's a good question. Are selfie sticks too long Probably. for the ballot boxes? However, that's... if I use my selfie stick and take a picture of your ballot, Casey, no, that... that would still be a major no-no. An important yes. distinction. <laughs> yeah. um, in other news, too, John, we were. Um, it, it looks as though there might be a bill filed or some sort of legislative action about a protest planned for Hampton Beach. Yes, it is uh, the Free the Nipple Movement. And so there's a, there's a group of women primarily that are trying to destigmatize the female body and um, basically go topless at the beach to, to show that they should have the same rights as men. Men go topless at the beach all the time. So why should they face criminal charges if they do the same thing? And so in this attempt to basically make going topless no big deal, it's turned into quite the big deal. And now uh, folks in Hampton are trying to do whatever they can to, to shut this down. And now we have uh, Nancy Stiles from Hampton who is saying that if they can't find a way to shut it down, she will file legislation next session that would make going topless uh, illegal in New Hampshire because right right now I don't go think ahead. that's the legislation right, that she's going to file. Right. Um, according to clarification, I'm sorry. Um, why why clarification? Okay, according so to reporting done by my colleague Ali Morris, um, I believe that the legislation that Styles is looking at filing would allow towns and cities the authority to come up with their own rules. So you might be allowed to go topless in some parts of New Hampshire, but not all of them. Yes, so. but, but also just given that New Hampshire has such a tiny amount of beach right. in its entire area, well, I mean, it would really come down there are, to... There are lakes no, and true. other, you know, other places, but... Yeah. It, it, it is somewhat, it is somewhat con, uh, unclear as well because Laconia has an anti-nudity, uh, anti-topless ordinance right now that they've they, uh, enacted in response to some behavior at bike week right so towns can in fact um seems to ban this but i think it's on an obscenity statute because in order to be guilty of lewdness you have to be guilty of exposing genitals and toplessness it does not qualify so there is some room that towns and cities can already enact their own local ordinances there's also, um, you know, this comes at kind of a, a time when this is, there's a national movement on this. Uh, there's a, you know, a groups nationwide who are engaging in this kind of free the nipple protest. Um, and one of the women also that uh, Ali talked to for her story had mentioned, um, you know, that this wasn't necessarily just about, you know, wanting to go topless just for the sake of going topless. It's, you know, it's kind of an equality thing and just, you know, being less stigmatized and less, you know, sexualized, frankly, than men are for doing the same thing. Um, and this one woman had also mentioned that, you know, while there is some kind of law on the books that says that breastfeeding does not constitute indecent exposure in New Hampshire, that, you know, she still feels somewhat ostracized when she does try to breastfeed and that, you know, these issues are somewhat related because of the stigma that exists around this particular part of the body. Hmm. And we are clearly not on the French Riviera. No. We, uh, we must embrace our Puritan roots, which uh, say that we shall be covered from our neck to our <laughs> wrists at all times. To, our, to, our, to, our, um, to the tips of our toes as well. Um, uh, in, in some other candidate news, we've also had uh, uh, 
uh, Rand Paul and Ben Carson uh, swing by the state. Um, so, kind of what's what's been the What's been kind of the interest out there in hearing from these guys, Casey? Um, well, I think it, it's important to note that Rand Paul had not been here for some time. Um, I think he was here for last week's forum. Uh, or no, he wasn't, actually, because he was in D.C. taking a right, vote on Planned Parenthood. Um, but it had been quite some time since he had been back in New Hampshire. So, um, you know, he has a pretty solid following here um, and a pretty strong community of people who are backing him both at the, you know, the legislative kind of activist level and also at the grassroots level. But I think there was some, you know, hunger to see him here more because he was here very frequently early on in the year. Um, so, um, yeah, he did a bunch of stops in a number of different towns. And then today you had Ben Carson, the retired neurosurgeon, um, has never served in public office, but is, you know, a, a, a person who is of great interest to a number of people in New Hampshire and across the country. Um, I think I, I just saw a poll out of Iowa that had him rising to maybe second or third place after the debates, um, getting a little bit of a bump from that. Um, but he's someone who has come up in a lot of conversations that I have with Republican voters who, you know, really run the across the board in terms of their ideology, but it's just, you know, they're really curious about like what he's about, what he has to offer. I think they like that he is not a career politician, which seems to be a, a running theme for a lot of voters this year, um, particularly on the Republican side. Um, and people have great respect for him, you know, for the work that he did um, as a surgeon and performing some really pioneering procedures in that role. Um, and the fact that he as a member of the medical profession has been such a outspoken critic of the Affordable Care Act. I think that, you know, resonates and, and lends credence for a lot of people to their own concerns about that law. Well, and we'll have more, more coverage of um, Carson's visit in, in tomorrow, Friday's monitor, too. Um, so just kind of um, beginning to wrap up a little bit here uh, for this week. Um, Last week, we kind of did a little bit of a preview for the first full-on Republican debate that was on Fox News. Uh, it's been a, a, a week since then, um, and there's been all sorts of uh, fallout from the debate, mainly around uh, everyone's uh, favorite Republican frontrunner, Donald Trump, his uh, uh, confrontation with uh, anchor Megyn Kelly, and subsequent kind of some back and forth there, although it's been... I guess all has been more or less resolved at this point. But, um, you know, kind of looking back to that debate, uh, John, Casey, uh, any thoughts, anything that you still still remember uh, at this point? I think Casey touched on John Kasich's response to that one question. I think that was a standout. We talked about Ben Carson being in New Hampshire today. Uh, many people discussed his his the way he answered his the last question and then his closing remarks uh he did so with insight wit humor uh especially the question when when he was asked you know how come you don't bring up uh race more often and he said because i'm a neurosurgeon i i see people from the lens of what makes them who they are not the color of their skin and it was just you know a, a very eloquent answer and uh so he he's I think uh, he stood out, now he's here, and I think there's a lot of interested people uh, going out to see what he has to say. 
Yeah, I think um, it's also worth noting that during the uh, the earlier debate with the lower tier candidates, um, according to polling averages, um, the uh, I, I think that there's a lot of agreement in the national media, and I've also seen this in you know the more local media that Carly Fiorina really stood out during that debate. She was very you know very on point, very uh, confident in her answers. Um, she really, you know, she's a very skilled public speaker, has a lot of experience in that area. Um, and I think that, you know, you've seen a lot of buzz around her in the weeks since. So I'll be interested to see whether she, um, you know, makes it on stage for that next debate. Um, well, and interesting. It, and there's also some evidence that kind of a winnowing has already mm-hmm. begun after that debate with uh, former Texas Governor Rick Perry's campaign telling, I believe it was staffers in South Carolina, that they wouldn't be able to pay them anymore. And they'd need to be free to they were free to look for other work. So not maybe the the not maybe a sign of long term hopes mm-hmm. for that campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to me, I think what was was interesting was kind of the the ongoing kind of deterioration of Jeb Bush uh, and kind of, you know, just widely perceived for so long to be kind of the the de facto Republican front runner. And, you know, it's not as though he embarrassed himself necessarily, but most people feel as though he did not have the most confident performance. I think it was interesting watching both him and Scott Walker because those two, there was a lot of um, kind of anticipation around them. Uh, Those were, they were both, you know, talked about as though they were front runners for quite some time. Um, And I think that, you know, like you said, neither of them necessarily stumbled, but I think that they were maybe outshadowed by some of the other candidates on stage. Um, So, you know, Jeb Bush was in New Hampshire the day after the debate, and it was interesting to see he was at a town hall and kind of used that, um, I think, to his to his benefit and, and rather smartly as kind of a, you know, a second act to some of the the questions that came up during the debate. And there was even, you know, a woman who asked him a question that was asked to other candidates at the debate. So he had kind of a chance to get a little bit more speaking time than what he had the night before. Um, And he said, you know, at that point that he kind of brushed off questions from reporters about his performance and said, you know, I'm just doing, you know, just being me, not too concerned about it. And I think that um, he, like a lot of other candidates, are trying to focus on playing the long game. But Casey, you mentioned the long game, and that's what we're doing in this podcast, too. We're playing the long game. We'll see you all next week, too. And uh, I'm sure we'll have a bunch more to talk about. So, John, thanks so much. Thank you, Clay. Casey, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can subscribe to the Political Monitor podcast through iTunes or Stitcher, and keep up to date with all of the latest political news through the Political Monitor website at politics.conqueredmonitor.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. I, uh, I I found it interesting. <laughs> uh, you know, I did, really didn't have a follow-up there. It was the circle of life. I was going to start singing. Or something. Akuna Matata, yeah. Clay. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, John, you were saying. I was.